Erica Morini shuddered in her bed, moaning faintly in pain. It was time. The few people whom she hadn't pushed away gathered around. Difficult as she'd been in life, no one deserved to die alone. The mood was somber as Morini coughed and gasped out unintelligible accusations. Sick, weak, nearly blind, and suffering from aggressive heart failure, Marini had had herself checked out of the hospital a few weeks prior so she could die in the comfort of her elegant Fifth Avenue apartment in New York City. Her brother, Frank, delicately took her hand, giving her something to grasp onto as she took her final breaths. My violin. Where is my violin? Marini begged. A concerned hush fell over the room. Finally, someone spoke up, pointing to the violin case that sat atop the nearby shelf. They reassured poor Erica that her violin was safe. But it was a lie. The violin, the real violin, a Stradivarius valued at $3.5 million, had been stolen two weeks before. Marini's friends and family had replaced it with a fake so as not to concern her during her final weeks. Morini died later that day, on November 1st, 1995. Her famous violin has never been found. Welcome to Gone, a podcast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Gone in the search bar. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love— let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This episode is about the Davidoff Marini Stradivarius. Once used by prodigy violinist Erica Marini during the height of her musical career in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, the Stradivarius was stolen a few weeks before her death. It remains at large and is one of the most valuable items on the FBI's Missing Valuables database. When it comes to violins, there are few names that conjure as much awe or envy as Stradivarius. These violins, made by the maestro artisan Antonio Stradivari during the late 17th and early 18th centuries, are considered to be among the finest violins in existence. There are only a few hundred still around today, and they can sell for millions of dollars. In this episode, we're going to briefly touch on the history of the Stradivarius violin in order to emphasize what specifically made them so valuable. We'll also cover the life story of Erica Marini, her five-decade career as a violinist, and her legendary Stradivarius violin. 
Then we'll dive into Marini's death, the disappearance of the Stradivarius, and the cast of characters who were suspected of being behind the deed. Suspected is the key word here, because no one was ever charged with the crime. Over 20 years after its theft, the Davidoff Marini Stradivarius has not been found. There have been no leads. No one has attempted to sell the valuable instrument. Although the FBI did have some suspects, including Marini's brother and her former caregiver, there was never any evidence to indicate guilt among any one party. No new suspects have emerged in the case since 1995. One can only wonder if any will ever emerge. To understand the magnitude of the theft, it's first important to explain what makes the Davidoff Marini Stradivarius stand out among other instruments. Born in 1644 in Italy, Antonio Stradivari made a name for himself among the community of European instrument artisans. He became particularly famous for his experimental methods of design and construction, which made his violins stand out from the other popular models that were being produced at that time. Depending on when it was made, a Stradivarius violin might have either a longer or shorter neck than was considered standard. This naturally affected the length of the strings of the violin and thus produced a slightly different but wholly distinct sound. The bodies of these instruments were usually less round than more common models. The difference in shape affected how sound reverberated in the bouts or the hollow cavity inside the violin's walls. The materials themselves stood out too. Stradivari used maple trees to harvest the wood for his violins. However, recent comparisons between the wood in Stradivarius violins and regular modern maple trees have shown that Stradivari's wood has distinct different chemical factors from other trees. This makeup makes the wood in Stradivari's instruments more dense, which creates a cleaner sound. Stradivari was known for his extremely precise carving and magnificent dexterous ability. It's possible that the very shape of the violins is constructed to produce a better quality sound. The differences in how Stradivari carved his wood were so minute and minuscule that only he knew where they were and how they worked. Stradivari hit a stride during what is known as his golden years, the period from the 1700s to the 1720s when he was in his 60s and 70s, during which he produced his highest quality work. When he died in 1737, Stradivari had built over 1,000 violins. After Stradivari's death, other prominent violin makers of the time began to liberally borrow his techniques. Throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, Stradivari's influence was felt across generations of violin makers. As the decades passed, musicians and collectors began to trace these craftsmanship techniques back to Stradivari and laud his violins as superior. Today, Antonio Stradivari is considered the finest craftsman of violins to ever live. His instruments, over 500 of which still exist to this day, are said to produce a uniquely full, pristine sound.
Interestingly, musicologists and scientists aren't exactly sure why Stradivarius violins are able to make perceivably better notes. There are some likely possibilities as to what makes a Stradivarius stand out from the rest. The placement and size of the hole in the body of the violin is another potential culprit for what makes a Stradivarius stand out. One popular answer actually invokes the weather as the key ingredient of a Stradivarius violin. The theory states that the colder climate in Europe at that point in history inhibited tree growth. Slower growing trees yielded denser wood. Stradivari could have obtained his wood from a spot that was home to some particularly dense trees. Dense trees meant more rigid bodies, which created a cleaner echo chamber and thus a smoother sound. But we should clarify, this is all speculative. The exact reason for these violins' superiority isn't confirmed. It's more than a little convenient that these instruments are famous for their superior sound, despite the fact that no one can point specifically to what causes it. It's a pretty good sales hook to label something as the best in its class, while also stating that the reason the thing is so good has been lost to history. But people, including master musicians, buy into the authenticity of the Stradivarius's superiority. This reputation is what leads the instruments to sell for millions of dollars. Even today, the instruments are still valued at close to eight figures. In 2011, a Stradivarius violin sold at auction for 9.8 million pounds, or about $15.9 million. All that money for less than 500 grams of wood and strings. But master violinists and musicians seem to have no problem shelling out to pay for a Stradivarius when the opportunity to purchase one arrives. The Stradivari violins were renowned for their quality while Stradivari was alive. After his death in 1737, the instrument's reputation only grew. By the 20th century, they were known as the cream of the crop of violins and thus were intended only for the most skilled of players. Which brings us to Erica Morini. Erica Morini was born on January 5, 1904, in Vienna, Austria. As the daughter of Oscar and Malka Morini, both musicians, Erica seemed destined to pursue music from a young age. She was a child prodigy, though as is often the case with historical figures who excel as young children, it's unclear when exactly her skills first became evident. As one story goes, the infant Erica would sit in the living room of her parents' home when her father gave music lessons. If a student botched a note, Erica would make a fuss and either sing the correct note or waddle over to her father's piano and play it. Throughout her life, Erica had a reputation as a perfectionist. It would seem that that was the case even when she was just five years old. Erica's fastidiousness probably didn't create the most conducive environment for teaching. But Oscar likely didn't have to rely on the income from students for much longer, as Erica's talent made itself more and more evident. 
At just five years old, Erika played for none other than the Emperor of Austria, Franz Joseph. She was situated behind a sheet to play. The Emperor was moved immensely by the beautiful music and shocked when the sheet was removed to reveal that his entertainer was a five-year-old girl. The Emperor was so impressed with Erika that he offered to give her whatever she wanted as a reward for her skillful playing. Erika, being a five-year-old girl, asked for a doll. It was the first time she'd been paid for her music. It wouldn't be the last. Erika was one of the first girls to be accepted into Austria's violin masterclass at the Vienna Conservatory when she was just eight. At 12, she performed her first concert as a professional violinist in 1916. The Austrian audience instantly recognized her as a -a one-of-a-kind talent. Soon, her performance went international. In 1921, at 17 years old, she debuted in America at Carnegie Hall. Erica took the audience by storm so fiercely that she was gifted the violin used by deceased violinist Maud Powell. Maud Powell had died the previous year in 1920. Her will had stated that her violin would only be passed on to the next great female violinist. However, it would not be long before Erica came into possession of another iconic violin. In 1924, her father, Oscar Marini, purchased the Davidoff Stradivarius in Paris for $10,000. That's nearly $150,000 in today's currency. Oscar ostensibly bought the violin with his own money, although it's certainly possible he made use of Erica's wealth, which even by then was significant. At only 20 years old, Erica was a top-dollar talent for concert halls across the United States. This Stradivarius would be Erica's instrument of choice for the bulk of her musical career. It would become her most prized possession. The violin defined Erica's legacy while she was alive. But after she died, that legacy would be less about her musical prowess and more about the grand mystery of the violin's disappearance. Next, the death of Erica Marini and the theft of her beloved Stradivarius. Now, back to the story. In 1924, 20-year-old musical prodigy Erica Marini was gifted a rare Stradivarius violin, carved in the 18th century by the master artisan himself, Antonio Stradivari. She would later claim that the violin was, bar none, the best-sounding instrument she'd ever heard in her life. The exact date of the instrument's creation isn't precisely known, but it is believed to have been constructed in 1727. This would make the violin a product of the golden years of Stradivari's production, placing it among the best instruments he ever produced. At the time it came into Erica's possession, the instrument was just known as the Davidoff Stradivarius. It is generally assumed that the instrument's first known owner was responsible for the name. The identity of this owner is not 100% clear, but one likely candidate is the Russian cellist Karl Yulievich Davidov. 
Though he was a cellist and thus would have little use for a violin, Davidoff was renowned for his skill and was likely among the few who could appreciate the violin for its craftsmanship. Naturally, Davidoff's name is what leads most to link him with the Davidoff Stradivarius. This is in spite of the spelling discrepancy. Carl's last name is spelled D-A-V-Y-D-O-V, whereas the common spelling for the instrument is D-A-V-I-D-O-F-F. Still, the alternate spellings could be just a translation issue. Carl named the violin for himself, and then after his death, the name endured with a modified spelling. The potential ownership is made even murkier by the fact that Carl Davidoff owned a cello, which was also known as the Davidoff Stradivarius, though in this case, Davidoff was spelled D-A-V-I-D-O-V. Regardless, Carl Davidoff died in 1889. If he did own the Davidoff Stradivarius violin, it somehow managed to move into the possession of Parisian violin makers Silvestre and Mocatel. Oscar Marini then purchased the violin from them in 1924. Erica Marini was rarely seen without her Stradivarius after 1924. It was the primary instrument upon which she played for a decades-long career of concerts and acclaim. Marini sold out concerts in New York, London, Israel, and her birthplace, Vienna. She got married in the 1930s, but had no children. Marini believed that her artistic career and a family were not compatible facets of life. In 1976, at the age of 72, she performed her final concert. She retired soon after, and by all accounts, never touched a violin again. At the time of her retirement, she was considered by many music critics to be the greatest woman violinist who ever lived. Marini didn't turn into a recluse. She began teaching violin lessons in her later years. This business didn't last for long. Though nearly a century had passed, Marini clearly still had the spirit of that infant girl who would make a fuss over her father's students whenever they got a note wrong. She was, by all accounts, a perfectionist, obsessive and demanding. She had a reputation for not keeping students for long. Still, she wasn't lacking for visitors. After retiring, Erica confined her beloved Davidoff Stradivarius to an unflattering cabinet in her apartment. Friends and peers would come to visit her in New York just to lay eyes upon the famous violin. The key thing of note that came out of these visits was, well, how unspectacular the violin's trappings were. This was a violin that had been made by the greatest violin maker in history at the height of his career one that had brought its owner untold riches and fame, and it was locked in a glorified dish cabinet, collecting dust in a cheap-looking case. More than one of Marini's visitors warned her about keeping an instrument that valuable in such a mundane environment. There was no serious lock, no combination. Anyone with an urge could easily break into the cabinet and steal the instrument. 
But Marini was an old, wizened woman. She was set in her ways, and she wasn't intending to move the instrument to anywhere else. Tragically, Marini's mental and physical condition declined rapidly throughout the 1980s. Her husband took care of her and managed most of her affairs until his death in 1985. After that, Marini was left alone, and things steadily got worse. As she began to develop arthritis and a range of other maladies, Marini became short-tempered and demanding, and would often burn through several caregivers a year. Despite her immense wealth, Marini was known to be tight-fisted. She was, in fact, so frugal that she wouldn't even pay the premium required to insure her beloved violin. Now, the premium was quoted at being in the range of $11,000, so maybe we can't really blame her for being hesitant to insure a thing that she hadn't touched in years. But then again, considering that by 1995, the Davidoff Marini Stradivarius was valued at $3.5 million, $11,000 seems like a small price to pay. Marini was stubborn, though. Even after she retired from playing the violin and giving music lessons, she reportedly didn't lose her compulsive perfectionist nature. As Erica approached her 90th birthday, she found that she was pushing more and more people out of her life. She lost touch with people who may have helped take care of her and who may have had success in talking her out of rash decisions. In the later years of her life, Marini apparently flirted with the idea of selling the Stradivarius. She would meet with buyers, negotiating sale prices, get close, and then raise the asking price at the last minute. During this period, she became particularly close with Brian Skarstad, a violin dealer who would fall under suspicion after the instrument vanished. One could imagine that it was immensely difficult to consider selling the instrument that had been with her for all of her adult life. Plus, it wasn't like she needed the money. She was a wealthy woman who knew she was close to death. On October 18th, Erica Bradford and her daughter Valerie went to Marini's apartment on Fifth Avenue. The place was empty. By then, Marini was in hospice care at New York's Mount Sinai Hospital. Erica and Valerie Bradford were the latest in a long string of caregivers that had come and gone from Marini's life over the last few years. They had a key, and they had been tasked with setting up the necessary medical equipment that would allow Marini to continue and conclude her hospice care from her home. Erica Bradford played the violin. In her trips with Valerie to Marini's empty apartment during the period when Marini was in the hospital, Bradford had taken to opening the locked closet case where the Stradivarius was stored and looking at it. But on October 18th, Valerie opened the silver closet that housed the Stradivarius only to see that the case and the violin within it was missing. Bradford called the police, who quickly determined that the apartment had been burgled. In addition to the Davidoff Marini Stradivarius, a number of valuable paintings were missing. Also, interestingly, all of Marini's handwritten compositions and fingering guides were gone as well. Soon after, Marini was transported from the hospital back to her apartment. Her friends and relatives, at the behest of her brother, Frank, 
arranged for a replica instrument to be brought to the apartment. When Marini called out to see her previous violin, they showed her the replica. She was far gone enough by then that she believed the fake was the real thing. Everyone knew that Marini didn't have much time, and no one wanted to upset her by telling her the sad truth that her beloved instrument had been stolen. The police had determined that there was no forced entry into Marini's apartment. Whoever had stolen the violin had a key, and thus was someone with access to Marini. The group of people who stood over her as she died may well have included the thief. Just a few weeks after the theft, Erica Marini passed away on November 1, 1995. There were no leads as to the whereabouts of the Davidoff Marini Stradivarius at the time of her death. There are still no solid leads to this day. So what happened to the Davidoff Marini Stradivarius? It's difficult to break this mystery down into full-blown theories for two main reasons. The first is that while the police and the FBI did compile a list of suspects who could have stolen the Stradivarius, they never got close to a point where they could label one person as a prime suspect. There was no cohesive motive beyond greed. The evidence was all circumstantial. Essentially, the only thing connecting the suspects was that they each had access to the apartment. Without anything more to go off of, all the police had were suspicions which they couldn't act upon. The second reason that throws a wrench into any attempt to break down this disappearance is the fact that we simply have no idea where the violin is today. In the 20-plus years since the Stradivarius was stolen, there have been absolutely no traces of it. No photographs, no descriptions found in the notes of visitors to antique shows, no rumors among black market dealers. The other items that were stolen, the paintings and the compositions, are equally lost in the wind. There is no trail to pick up to find the stolen Stradivarius. Whoever stole the Davidoff Marini Stradivarius could very likely still have possession of it today. As far as law enforcement knows, there has never been an attempt to sell a stolen violin that matches the Davidoff Marini Stradivarius's description. That would seem to mean that whoever took the violin didn't do so with the intent to profit off it. Considering the fact that Marini's compositions and notes were stolen as well, it could very well be true that the thief wanted the violin so that they could enjoy it as the pristine instrument it really was. Money wasn't the motive. Music was. After the FBI got involved in the investigation into the missing violin, they dispatched Jim Wynn to Fifth Avenue to interview the small group of people who were still active in Marini's life. Each of them was a suspect, if for no other reason than they had access to the apartment and the poorly secured violin during the period when Erica was in the hospital. The list of suspects was Erica Bradford and her daughter Valerie, whose discovery of the missing violin may have been a ploy to cover up their involvement. Then there was Erica Marini's brother, Frank, who had taken over much of Erica's affairs after her husband's death. 
Brian Skarstad was the violin dealer who had been working with Marini in the final year of her life, begging her to let him help sell the Stradivarius. Though it is unclear where Marini ever actually intended to sell the violin, Brian was involved in her affairs during this period. He knew where the violin was, and he knew that Erica's condition was deteriorating. Peter Sapphire was Marini's accountant, who had worked with Frank in overseeing Marini's financial affairs during the final years of her life. He was the executor of Marini's will and was very involved with her. Thus, he had access to her apartment. Lucienne Oracel was Marini's neighbor, whom some in the building claimed spent a lot of time with Marini. While Oracel did admit that he had run errands for his neighbor, he downplayed the frequency of his interactions with her. Finally, there was Avis Walcott, a caretaker who had briefly worked for Marini just before she went to the hospital. Could one of these people have stolen the Davidoff Marini Stradivarius? What was their motivation if it wasn't to sell the violin? Is it possible that Marini herself did away with the instrument and died before she could tell anyone? Next, we'll look into these potential suspects and try to determine the likely fate of the Davidoff Marini Stradivarius. Now, back to the story. The police and the people closest to Erica Marini collectively decided not to tell her that her beloved violin, the Davidoff Marini Stradivarius, was stolen in October of 1995. Erica died just a few weeks later on November 1st, cradling the violin which she believed was her Stradivarius. That model was a fake, commissioned by Erica's loved ones, so as not to distress her with the news of the theft. After Erica's death, FBI agent Jim Wynn resumed his investigation into the people who may have had something to do with it. Unfortunately, there wasn't much to be discovered. The first and apparently most obvious suspects were Erica Bradford and her daughter, Valerie. Although they were the ones who actually called the police to report the missing violin, this fact didn't work in their favor. Erica and Valerie were the last people who were known to have accessed Erica's Fifth Avenue apartment before the violin went missing. They had gone in and out of the apartment a number of times in the weeks after Erica Marini had been admitted to the hospital. The Bradfords could have stolen the violin, waited a few weeks, and then reported it missing after it was long gone. There was nothing that could prove the violin had been in the apartment at any point on the day that it was discovered missing. However, it's also true that there was no proof that Erica or her daughter had committed a crime. Both Erica and Valerie were administered polygraph tests. Valerie produced negative results for the question of whether they had any idea where the violin was. While they remained in the sphere of suspects, specifically because of the amount of access they had to Marini's apartment, the lack of any other evidence exonerates them to an extent. Frank Marini, Erica's younger brother, was also considered a suspect due to his proximity to both his sister and her apartment during the period when the violin was likely stolen. Like the others, Frank's motivation for the theft is unclear. However, 
One thing to consider is the matter of Erica's will. Frank was the only one of his family who was not a professional artist. As an art dealer, he was more business-minded, which made him suitable to help manage his sister's affairs after the death of her husband in 1985. What follows is purely conjecture, but could make sense given the facts. Erica Marini had no children, and thus her will largely benefited the few people who were still close to her at the end of her life and a number of charities. Frank, as an art dealer, surely knew the value of the Davidoff Marini Stradivarius. Moreover, he could likely fetch quite a sum for it. Or he could have had a sentimental attachment to the instrument, as a link to his and Erica's now-dead father, Oscar, who had purchased the violin in the first place over 70 years prior. Erica's will dictated that the violin should be sold and that the proceeds from the sale should be split up among a number of Jewish charities she had selected. Could it be possible that Frank wanted to keep the violin in the family? When he was questioned by the police, Frank asserted that he always knew something like this would happen. Frank had tried and failed to get his sister to take more care in how she stored her valuables. According to Frank, there had been another break-in a few years before, and he posited that whoever had been behind that theft had come back to take the violin. This, unfortunately, only raises more questions. Erica reportedly had kept her violin in that unsecure closet since 1976. If there had been a break-in prior to 1995, why hadn't the thief taken it then? In this mystery, there's no one theory that has enough supporting evidence to warrant a full, in-depth analysis. Instead, we're going to broadly discuss the possible motives behind the known suspects and some of the more outlandish, harder-to-prove possibilities. Brian Skarstad likely had the most financial motive to steal the violin. By the time of her death, Erica had spent more than a year teasing him with the prospect of selling the Stradivarius. He'd get her locked into an agreed selling price of $3 million, and then she'd raise the price to 4 All the while, she'd call him at odd hours to make conversation or ask for favors. Skarstad obliged, likely because he thought that spending enough time with Marini would eventually motivate her to let him sell the violin. And maybe he was a kindred soul. Erica was a sick, elderly woman by that time. She didn't have many people close to her who she wasn't paying to be around. Following the death of her husband, it's entirely possible that she just wanted someone to talk to who she knew appreciated the value of her violin as much as she did. But if Skarstad did steal the Stradivarius, if he got fed up with Erica's back-and-forth decision-making and decided to just take the thing, then the question still stands of where the violin ended up. Though we know little about Brian Skarstad, it seems unlikely that he would steal the violin and then not sell it. The man is a violin salesman, after all. And even if he had tried to cover her tracks and perhaps pass off the Davidoff Marini Stradivarius as some other kind of violin in order to offload it, wouldn't there have been some trace of the violin by now? Avis Wolcott, a nanny and Marini's former housekeeper, was implicated, 
though her involvement probably had more to do with the cliched assumption that housekeepers rifle through the employer's belongings. After the theft, when Wolcott was questioned, she was still working as a nanny, a job she likely wouldn't still be doing if she had stolen a $3.5 million violin. Could the thief have been someone closer to Marini's inner circle? Erica's accountant, Peter Sapphire's involvement is, like Frank's and Brian's, largely circumstantial. He knew where the violin was, he knew its value, and he had fairly easy access to Marini's apartment as the executor of her will. Beyond that, though, there's nothing to link Sapphire to the theft. Finally, Lucienne Oracel was present at Erica's funeral. Lucienne was Erica's neighbor, and more than a few people noted that he had been unusually close to her. There was an implication that Oracel may have hoped to be included in Erica's will. Oracel flatly denied it, and like all the others, his connection to Erica is more one of proximity and opportunity than real motive. It's not even clear whether he had a key to Marini's apartment. There is one final possibility to consider, one that Oracel provided to the police. It could be possible that Erica Marini herself either loaned or gifted the violin to a friend or family member who chose not to return it after Erica died. There is naturally no clue who this may be, though it may likely be one of the aforementioned subjects. If one of these people had possession of the Stradivarius when Erica died, and they knew that no one would be able to verify when it had been taken, and that if they returned, it would end up being sold anyway, then maybe, just maybe, the violin wasn't stolen as much as it was kept out of negligence. Now, there's a stretch in logic here. If this really happened, then whoever made off with the violin would have received it when Erica was still alive. They would have had to take the serious gambit that Erica would not remember giving it to them between the discovery of the violin's theft and her ultimate death. That's a lot of ifs. But in a case like this, where no one lead really stands out among the others, hypotheticals are the only way we can really examine this. Again, this is from information that was reported over 20 years ago. Who can really know what these people's actual relationship to Marini was? She was known to be difficult in her final years. Who can say what falling out she might have had with any of the suspects or anyone else in her life? As an infirm, elderly woman who very clearly didn't put much work into securing her belongings, Marini created a situation where all it would take was one bad argument to inspire someone in her life to steal from her. Today, the Davidoff Marini Stradivarius is on the FBI's list of top 10 art crimes. In the years since its disappearance, the value of the instrument has gone up and is now estimated at being closer to $8 million. And still, no traces exist. A reward still stands of $100,000 for any information that leads to the violin's recovery. Given that there are no Marinis left alive, one wonders what would have become of the violin if it actually was found. Was it stolen? Or did Erica Marini take the identity of its new owner to her grave? 
The FBI tip line is still open for any information about the location of the Davidoff Marini Stradivarius. So long as the instrument remains lost, there will be those in law enforcement who seek to find it. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Gone, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Gone in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carrie Murphy, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Gone was written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.